You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Tonight we're near the conclusion of the book of Hebrews. We're in the 12th chapter for the second time. A sermon we've entitled Finishing as we're asked to stay close to God and stay firm in faith. Uh, we know that the main theme in the book of Hebrews is that all things have been uh, greater and better in Christ, the fulfillment of God's plan in the redemption of man. And now we live in faith in him and the sanctification in which he instructs us. We've seen these um, this outline of the book of Hebrews as we've gone through the arguments that were made and the exhortations along the way. Christ being greater even than angels, uh, his comparison to humanity, which, of course, he is the greatest of us, but uh, uh, come to be with us. And as such regard for us, uh, the comparison, then of the things with Christ and the law, as of mediation and delivery, Christ greater and more faithful than Moses, the greater priesthood, greater than uh, that which came by Aaron, we now join the greater covenant with the better promises, the mediation that he brought uh, uh, through that for our salvation and his ministry of service in it, the great sacrifice, which is uh, of himself, not of bulls and goats that can't take away sin. And then we were shown the examples of the faithful, and we began this chapter with the faithful example of Jesus. We had exhortations along the way. Don't be neglectful of the great salvation which we've heard. Don't uh, fall away and uh, not believe in God's word. Don't be deceived by sin, but encourage one another day after day while it's still called today. Don't be immature. Don't fall away, but put your confidence in God's word. The great set of exhortations in chapters 5 and 6. In chapter 10, the exhortation to fidelity and faith in God, or it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but it's a wonderful, faithful life if you live in him. Then last week, we saw the need to accept the Father's discipline. And now we're in the section where we see the great danger of missing out and falling short of God's great grace. And we'll move to that last section to receive his kingdom, acceptably serving him with reverence and with awe. Now, that doesn't conclude the book, but it does conclude the main line of argument in the book. The chapter 13, verse 22, calls this letter a word of exhortation. I think what we have is the full text of an inspired sermon here in the book of Hebrews, and I think that sermon pretty well ends at the end of the 12th chapter. But since we're writing this down and since we're sending a letter, then there's some other exhortations which have not been in the flow of the book and are on any number of uh, important subjects about brotherly love, about uh, uh, hospitality, about uh, uh, sexual purity and uh, the blessing of marriage, about uh, uh, not being greedy. Several other exhortations will follow in short course, in short form, after the main body of uh, the lesson. And so I think that's the since we're writing to you, let's go ahead and remind you of these few things too. But the, tonight's reading and study will conclude the main argument, the main line 
of the book of Hebrews. So now we're coming to the end, the very end of the main sets of arguments. So our mind was taken to Jesus as we started chapter 12 to fix our eye on Jesus and consider him in verses 2 and 3. And now after having told us about accepting God's discipline for our good, we now have this uh, remaining in uh, chapter 12. Verse 14, we began to read. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there are no immoral or godless persons like Esau. For you know how that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to a mountain that cannot be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to the darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and to the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the commandment, that if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so terrible was the sight, that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant, and to sprinkle blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking, for if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much more, or how much less, pardon, how much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removal of things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So here's the conclusion of it. This word of exhortation. We receive a kingdom that can't be shaken. Let's show gratitude. Offer to God acceptable service with reverence and awe. For he's a consuming fire. So all through the book of Hebrews, this constant comparison, the way of faithfulness and the way of apostasy. Fidelity to God or a shrinking back. And so, verse 15, as we've had several warnings about neglecting the salvation, about falling away in chapter 6, now we have a yet again, see to it, as we begin tonight's study, verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. 
Well, sounds like we might come short of it if we don't pay attention. Well, how would we not? How would we not receive God's grace, which we've uh, understood in the in Christ, and we've received, and we've been walking in? Why wouldn't we make it to the end? Why do we keep being told, "Be firm to the end, keep your confidence to the end," and that is great reward? Why? Well, verse fifteen tells us that there be no root of bitterness springing up, causing trouble, and by it many are defiled. And so instead of appreciation, reverence, and awe, and gratitude, as we ended our reading, we have here at the beginning of the reading, bitterness. When resentment sets in, when people think that uh, they're not being treated fairly by God, or sometimes people think, I'm not being treated fairly by other believers. When people decide that this is not going as it ought, and they become bitter, they can become unfaithful. As we'll note all through this section, nearly all of it is an allusion to some kind of Old Testament principle or Old Testament incident, as we're about to mention Esau. But it might escape us that this root of bitterness is a reference to the Old Testament as well. It is a reference to a thing the Jewish audience uh, from which these believers are drawn they would have known and been familiar with. This is from Deuteronomy 24, where it gives a special warning in the law about being bitter. And just think about how that ties in here. Deuteronomy 24, 18. It said, Lest there should be among you a man or woman, a family or tribe. So it might be an individual, it might be a whole family, it might be a whole group, whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, lest there shall be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. Sometimes that wormwood uh, we find as bitterness. We find that oftentimes in the old King James, is a, uh, where the newer translations say bitterness, the old translation will say wormwood, book of Revelation in particular, but there we have poisonous fruit and bitter fruit. So don't let that spring up, it says in Deuteronomy. It says, and it shall be when he hears the words of this curse that he will boast, saying, I have peace, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, in order to destroy the watered land with the dry. The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will burn against the man. And every curse which is written in this book will rest on him. The Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Then the Lord will single him out for adversity from all the tribes of Israel, according to the curses of the covenant, which were written in the book of this law. So <laughs> the Old Testament, there's that special set of curses, a special noting of the man whose heart is not with God, he serves other gods, and he is a root that brings poisonous and bitter fruit. I think this is an allusion to that passage. And so don't be those under the curse by not following God. So don't be bitter. Don't be bitter. Be, be gracious. Have gratitude toward God and grace toward others. Verse 16 continues, that there be no immoral, King James say fornicator, 
or godless, King James say profane, person like Esau. So don't be immoral and godless. So don't be a fornicating, profane person. And we know some people like that in the family of God. In this case, it's Esau, the twin brother of the man named Israel, a man who didn't care at all for his spiritual heritage, a man who didn't seem to care at all about spiritual things. It says he's profane or godless. Well, he sold his birthright, as we'll read, for just a pot of stew. It also adds here for us that he was a fornicator. That's interesting. It doesn't say that in the book of Genesis. We might well imply it, I think. We know he's definitely careless compared to his brother Jacob about who he married. He married women of Canaan. And when he found out that his father didn't like uh, women of Canaan to, to be married in the family, and he t uh, directly told his brother Jacob, don't marry women of Canaan, he thought he'd fix it by marrying somebody who was, like he told uh, Jacob, go marry somebody up in Haran uh, from the family. Uh, he also went and married an additional wife from the family. He married one of the daughters of Ishmael. Uh, so you figured, does that make it better or worse? Well, obviously, that would have just made things worse. Now, anyway, the, the, the fornicating or immorality part is not in uh, the book of Genesis, but the Hebrew writer here here tells us. And so here, here, was, um, here was Esau. And uh, so not thinking of God, thinking only of his own appetites, both physical uh, and sexual. He sold his own birthright for a single meal. We know that story from Vacation Bible School, don't we? We know that from the Bible story back in Genesis chapter 25. He comes in, he's famished. He says, go ahead, give me something, please. I'm about to starve. His brother, well, a, a tricky man uh, through the scriptures, and uh, it's a part of his name, of Jacob. Uh, he says, well, uh, I'll sell it to you. Uh, uh, I'll give you a bowl of stew if you sell me your birthright. He said, well, I'm going to die anyway over here. I'm just dying here in this chair of hunger. So what good is the birthright to me? So uh, give it, uh, I'll trade. He said, well, make a solemn oath. And they made a solemn oath. And it says he despised his birthright. Well, afterwards, and that's a Genesis 27, he wanted a blessing from his father. Uh, Jacob continued his trickery along with the help of his mother, which, of course, caused estrangement and undue uh, heartache in the family. But uh, Rachel and Jacob conspired together, uh, disguising Jacob as Esau. So Isaac, who wasn't in on the deal, he gave the blessing to the wrong person from his point of view. From the point of view of God, it was not. God worked through these shenanigans that these people were pulling, uh, and God had chosen Jacob and not Esau. But uh, anyway, uh, Esau, when he found out his uh, blessing had been given, uh, he said, Father, do you have only one blessing? Bless me too, Father, O my Father. And he lifted up his voice and wept. But there was no blessing for him. Uh, he had already sold off his birthright. Well, there are some things that we can't undo. And if we become unfaithful to God, that might not be undoable. It is the, the grace of God that so much unfaithfulness toward him is forgiven, that on our confession of it, that our humble repentance uh, uh, toward him uh, and the prayer in Christ for those in Christ is received and that God forgives so much. 
but we're not owed it. And one day we may not have it. We may find ourselves unable to bring ourselves to repent. We may find ourselves so stuck in the world and stuck in various uh, things we've done and their consequences that we can't find our way back to God. We always kind of presume that we will. Oh, yeah, I've been no, no problem to do this. He'll just receive me. When we start presuming upon God's grace, uh, I know we're depending on God's grace, but no, when we start presuming upon it, that's when we have trouble. And that's what the Hebrew writer warns about, not us not depending on God's grace. Uh, we're going to stay in God's graces by his graciousness, by our humble walk, by our repentance. That's how we're going to stay there. But one just thinks, well, I'll get to that later. I'll sin now and I'll get to that later. I'll despise these things that God has said. I'll live apart from him and I'll make it up later. I'll, I'll get around to repenting then. Now, you don't know that you will. You don't even know that you could. You don't, you're not guaranteed that you can. Don't do that. Don't do this. As it says, verse 17, even though he afterwards he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. So don't come short of God's grace. The twin brother of Israel came up short in this regard of God's grace by his immorality, by his bitterness, by his worldliness. Don't do that. So then we move on to this great set of concluding contrast. As the book is reaching its pinnacle, for we have not come to a mountain that cannot be that can be touched and a blazing fire to darkness and gloom and whirlwind. Well, that's a reference to Mount Sinai when the law was given. We haven't come to a physical place like that where it's a physically impressive show that the people witness. That's Deuteronomy 4. It describes it this way of what had happened the generation before in Exodus 19 and 20. You came and stood at the foot of the mountain. The mountain burned with fire, the very heart of the of heavens, darkness and cloud and thick gloom. And the Lord spoke to you from the midst of fire. Now, we didn't come to that awesome and terrible thing. Uh, we came uh, to a more glorious thing, to a, a more glorious law. It continues, there was the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which was spoken such that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken. So again, that's Exodus 20. The, the people heard the voice of God. They trembled and they stood a distance. They said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen. Don't let God speak to us lest we die. So Moses, you get on up there and you get that message and you bring it back to us. Why should we die? As it's describing again in Deuteronomy 5 about that day. Why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, we'll die. I think about these fellows, uh, some of these uh, Pentecostal guys who, oh yeah, I, I met God. I, I, I see him on a you know, semi-regular basis. Oh, really? What'd you do? Well, I, I, I sat down, I chatted with him or, uh, you know, I, I sat by while he gave me a revelation. Yeah, I think not. Anybody who meets God is always completely discombobulated. Uh, they, they are, in, when, it, when you, you're in the presence of the power and holiness of God, 
Uh, you, you don't just, uh, you know, keep brushing your teeth. God spoke to me while I was brushing my teeth this morning. No, no, not that wasn't God then. If there's not awe and terror, it wasn't God. But these people couldn't hardly stand to be in the sight of God, in the presence of God. They couldn't bear the commandment. Verse 20, if a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned. That's Exodus 19, 12, and 13. Uh, they put a border around the mountain. Did nobody go in there? And nobody's even supposed to gaze up in there and, and look. And then another fact, like Esau's immorality, not recorded in the Old Testament, but told us here, so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. There are a couple of statements other way places where uh, Moses uh, said he was afraid in the presence of God and the, the terror of God. But in this occasion, that's not recorded. It makes us all the more uh, you know, mindful and appreciative of Moses that in his fear, he still went to be in the presence of God to deliver uh, that message to the people uh, that they said, whatever God says uh, and speaks to you will do. Actually, we know they didn't do that, right? They promised that, but they didn't. While Moses was up getting the law of God, they, they set up a golden calf, and they worshiped that in the camp. But in any case, Moses, in his fear, as revealed here, went in fear and trembling to hear the word of God. These people just were afraid of God and wanted to get out from under his uh, presence and condemnation, and they had a big pagan feast while Moses was up there in fear and trembling getting the word of God for them. Now, as awesome as that was, as amazing as that was, the shaking, quaking, smoking, rolling, earthquaking, Mount Zion she, she, uh, that was there in the wilderness, or Mount Sinai, pardon, not Mount Zion, that, uh, that awesome Sinai, we've come to something better, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. So the spiritual mountain of God, Mount Zion is literally the place of God's temple. Sometimes Mount Zion refers to the Temple Mount. Uh, that, that name, that mountain, had a different name before Mount Moriah as well. But Mount Zion is always the name of that as a spiritual place. It's a the place of God. So we've come to God's better mountain, like Isaiah. Uh, excuse me, Psalm Psalm one thirty two. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for here I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her uh, provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. So God is in Zion. And, and in the Old Testament, looking forward, in many ways, Zion was the church. In the church, looking forward, you know, Zion is heaven. Uh, we sing the hymn, Zion, Zion. Uh, how we long to see. And we're talking not here even about the church, but we're talking about heaven. Well, here it is in this way. We've come to the real dwelling place of God. We've come to the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, verse 22 continues. That is a description we get of uh, heaven in uh, Revelation 21. There, John was taken in the spirit to a great high mountain, shown the holy city. Uh, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And uh, then uh, we think about uh, all the, the this heavenly Jerusalem 
being the place of God forever, being the place of his holy temple. Revelation 22, uh, when we're there, we need have no need of light because uh, he is the light and everyone can see him. So we've come to the even better place than Sinai. We've come to the better place than the temple of Jerusalem. We've come to uh, God's heavenly Jerusalem. And we make that approach to God through Jesus in his church. Again, don't go under the system of the law. Stay with Jesus and the church in the provision of the gracious gospel and have your home in heaven. And there it says there are myriads, myriads of angels. And so a myriad was a, uh, a Roman uh, designation of an army. Uh, it was made up of 12 legions. So uh, 12 legions would make a myriad. Well, here is uh, myriads, plural, of angels. And so if somebody wanted to uh, 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 run, that, uh, uh, run that number of how many, you know, it would be, it'd be a lot. It'd just be a lot. There's a whole lot of angels. There's a, a great assembly of them that's mentioned in the throne scene of God in uh, Revelation 4 and Revelation 5. And so we've come to, to God's incountable number of angels. So we're at the spiritual home of God. We're in the city of God. We're in the heavenly or the spiritual Jerusalem. We've got all the angels with us. And we've got the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So aside from uh, the angels and the spiritual beings, now we come to the people, the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So all the saved of all time who are with God, uh, that's where uh, we long to be. That's the group that we're going to be with now in and through Christ. So those who live faithfully under the law long before Christ came, they lived faithful to God in the only system they had, which was the law. And some of these now that Christ has come and saying, well, why can't we just do that? Uh, my great-grandpappy was a faithful Jew under the law, and uh, I trust that he's in heaven, and I know Christ has come now, but why can't I just be a faithful Jew under the law? And I can get to heaven and get to God that way. Well, because the law was a schoolmaster to bring one to Christ. The law was not the permanent arrangement. The gospel is the permanent arrangement. The gospel is the one and way which God has uh, brought. But all those who were, uh, uh, had been uh, faithful before, all the assembly, the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, they're enrolled in heaven. So if your name's in heaven, and we think about um, uh, from Luke 10, Jesus said uh, to those who were glad they could cast out demons, don't be glad about that, but be glad your name's recorded in heaven. Or um, we find about Philippians 4.3, uh, Paul said about some of those who were his fellow workers, their name was in the book of life, in the book of Revelation. We find uh, one of the great blessings is if you overcome, your name would not be blotted out of this book. And so if you're a faithful person, your name's in the enrollment sheet of heaven, the enrollment list of God. So today I went with my... Uh, uh, youngest son, uh, to the high school. It was uh, uh, meet the teacher or open house, or I forget exactly what 
where they called it, but it was for all the students to come up and get their locker assigned, if they drove a car, to get a parking lot, to meet some teachers, to do a few other things of business. And uh, uh, we got in there, and they, they saw him. They recognized him by name, or they recognized him on site. They knew his name. Said, hey, uh, yeah, your, your uh, last name is this letter, so here's some information for you. Here's a packet. But the reason why they knew him is he's been enrolled there for a while. He's enrolled. He belongs there. There are other people we saw walked up to the same table. They're new to the district or, uh, you know, they haven't uh, gone through the enrollment yet. And so they had to figure out who they are and then figure out what they're about. And they had to figure out, uh, you know, what grade are you and, and all kind of information and things. They had to get their enrollment straight. Well, of course, uh, my boy now being fourth year at that school, his enrollment's good. Well, what we hope is that our enrollment isn't just good down at the local school or in the union hall, or, or in the list, or whatever uh, other things we do, uh, but that the enrollment sheet in heaven has our name on it. So we've come there to the place where the firstborn are enrolled in heaven. We've come to God, the judge of all, it says, and the spirits of the just made perfect. So there's God. He's in charge of the enrollment, right? Uh, he's the judge. He knows who should be in, and he knows uh, who should be out. And then there's the righteous men who've been made perfect. Well, the righteous weren't perfect, but they were made perfect. Uh, faith is counted as righteousness. Uh, that's Old and New Testament both. That's Habakkuk 2, 4, and that's Romans 4 in verse 8, and that's Galatians 3. And uh, so by faith, we're enrolled in heaven. By faith, we are made to be a righteous and of all those who uh, went through that and were made perfect by faith, they're there with God. That is that general assembly. So uh, all, all the faithful ones. We're going to have mentioned a little bit of Abel, the first uh, righteous man who died. Uh, we're going to have mentioned of those who served, uh, you know, and we've had in uh, Hebrews 11, we had mentioned of all those faithful people like Enoch. And, well, we've mentioned Moses in this book repeatedly. And and Abraham, and, and Noah, and uh, all these other faithful folks. They've been made perfect, and they're with God. And when we come to God through Jesus Christ, we get put into the same list. We're enrolled in the same place, because we're all connected, verse 24, through Jesus. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Uh, we could go back and re-preach chapters 8 and 9 of this book if we wanted, but there we've got the mediation of a new covenant. We've got the sprinkled blood. We could go back and re-preach chapter 10, that the blood of bulls and goats would not take away sin. But in that old system, uh, there was blood sprinkled everywhere, and now in this new uh, system in Christ, uh, he went to the holy place, not on earth, but in heaven, and he took with him the blood that he shed for us. And we've been cleansed one time for all time because of that. And it says, this speaks better than the blood of Abel. Better than the blood of Abel. So the first martyr, Abel, a man who offered a, uh, a sacrifice uh, by faith, and it was a blood sacrifice. It was a sacrifice of his animals. So he offered good blood as he offered by faith. He also, as it were, I think this may be the figure here of his martyrdom. He, he was the, uh, the first, faith, first faithful martyr, and his blood 
cried out for vengeance from the ground, and God acknowledged his righteousness and accepted him. And so here is now Christ. He's, he's the ultimate martyr, completely perfect martyr, and he surpasses even the very first martyr, which is Abel. So we've come to all that, and that is the, the great set of concluding contrast. And I think basically now we'd say, uh, you know, the Hebrew writer is working up to uh, the invitation, the, the, the call for people to uh, change their life, confess a change of life or confess the Savior, although he's writing to people who believe. So uh, uh, confess a change of life or a uh, time for prayer. But he has these last few things to say about them then. Verse 25, see to it that you don't refuse him who's speaking. We've been warned over and over from the first, way back in chapter two, pay close attention to what we've heard. Don't neglect it. Don't drift away from it. Pay attention. This that we have in the gospel, it, it didn't come, uh, again, with that shaking Mount Sinai. It didn't come with earthquake and gloom and fire. But what it came is, in God's gracious invitation through his son who died for us. So don't refuse that. Don't think that this comes in as a second-rate thing. Don't think that there's anything of that old system or any system that surpasses it. And don't, it says, refuse him who's speaking uh, from him who warns from heaven. See, the, the people of Israel, even as they received the law, though they'd later say how much they revered it, but when they first got it, they didn't revere it at all. They refused God even as he gave the law. And so now here are some people refusing, sliding back from the gospel, even as they first received it. But no, verse 26, as his voice shook the earth then, but now he's promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but the heaven. This quotation of Haggai, not very many quotations of Haggai in the in the New Testament, but here's our quotation from Haggai, Haggai 2, 6 and 7. For thus says the Lord of hosts, said uh, the prophet Haggai, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and also the dry land. I will also shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of nations and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. So from the perspective of Haggai in the Old Testament, he was looking forward to the new. He was looking for God's house to be filled with glory. Well, I think it was filled with glory when the Messiah was there teaching. And that statement of the wealth of nations is about the progress of the church. But now from our perspective, the Hebrew writer uses that same to say, there's going to be a shaking even yet. So God shook that Old Testament system. He brought it down. And once he's going to, one more time, now under our system even, shake it. He's going to shake everything so that not only the earth but the heavens shake, and it's going to be everything that can be destroyed will be destroyed. This expression, 27, verse 27, yet once more denotes the removing of things which can be shaken. As of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken will remain. One day there's going to be a shaking so that nothing at all that's physical stays. All right? 
the end of all things, the end of the world. And when the end of the world occurs, what will remain? What will remain when the world is over? Well, what will remain is the word of God and the souls of men, right? The word of the Lord abides forever, said Isaiah, and Peter quoted it in First uh, Peter chapter 1. So if it can be shaken, it will be shaken. These people thought this Jewish system was permanent. That Jewish system had less than 10 years to go when the Hebrew writer wrote it. May have only had five or six to go. The temple in Jerusalem was about to go, right? But the church remains. And one day all the world will go. But the church and the word of God will remain. Therefore, the concluding of the concluding, therefore, since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, everything but the church is going to go because God will preserve the church. Since we receive a kingdom that can't be shaken, let us show gratitude. Here's our action items. Let us show gratitude by which we offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Show gratitude. Don't be an ingrate. Don't be forgetful. Don't think something's better coming along. Don't think it doesn't matter if I refuse this or not. Receive it with gratitude. Have a service that has reverence and awe, a fear of God and an awe of God. That old sense of the word awesome doesn't mean something's really cool. It means it brings awe to us. We, we are in the presence of a God who causes awe, and we should have that awe, and we should have that respect, that reverence. So serve with reverence and awe. Serve with the respectful fear of God, being uh, happy, showing gratitude you're here, not presuming upon that, acting like the church and the following of Christ and the living his way is a burden or something we didn't really want to do, but well, I guess we kind of got to. But no, with gratitude, serve with reverence and with awe. And one more time, just in case you weren't listening through all of these things and all of these warnings, one more time, for our God is a consuming fire. All the way back to Deuteronomy 4.24 for that reference, I think, in the original. But uh, we also had it back in chapter 10. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is a consuming fire. For those that think contrary to him, for that which is raised up against him, it will not, it cannot stand. If God wants it to stand, like the burning bush he originally talked to Moses in, he can have a, bur a bush burn all day long and not be consumed. Uh, he can give that, give it the strength to endure the fire. He can make the fire be purifying instead of destroying. He can make the fire be glorifying instead of destructive. It's all in the power of God. So the closing of the line of argument of Hebrews, don't refuse him and don't come up short of his grace, but show gratitude and serve with reverence. And with awe. 13th chapter next time, the uh, exhortations, as I say, I really think that ends the sermon. 
I think Hebrews from chapter 1, verse 1 till now, I think it's been one continuous sermon. It's the full text of an inspired sermon. Now the sermon's over. But since we've written it down and we're going to send it in the mail to folks, chapter 13, since we're writing, let's mention a few other things too. And so everything in the last chapter will be short exhortations, uh, not necessarily a long line of argument or logically prog progression or you know theologically set out, but just some practical exhortations, all given in a short form, uh, because we've got uh, uh, some room there on the end of the scroll that we're fixing to send around to everybody. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.